Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 678. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. And a little bit more fine than what I was the last time I put out a show. Apologies for that. I listened back to it, you know, and I just, I wasn't, I wasn't fit enough, you know what I mean? I didn't, I wanted to put that show out, but I don't know if anyone kind of knows the whole house went through the, the big C word there on, over right over Christmas. My wife's favourite time of the year, we'll have Christmas starting bloody November for us. And I got it on Christmas Day, and it knocked me for six. And I'm not, you know, I'm a brave man. I'm a tough man. I can get over, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I wanted to put that show out. And then, like I say, I listened back when I thought, yeah, fuck, I'm on two, and you should have just missed that one. But much more better here, much more better here. And I did mention on that show that I was going to put out a, like a little, I don't know what I was thinking, you know what I mean? It was all, it must have been delirious. I was going to do like another little narrative on my thoughts and things like that well that'll come next week i'll pop that out next week i'm fighting fit here i'm jacked up on caffeine so we're good and i'll talk about you know like star wars boba fett things because in that period of of like isolation lockdown and after the, the initial kind of steamroller hit us i was i was golfing audio books so i went through discovered a, a, a new writer a brand new writer for me who's been out for a while there who i just love tv shows you know what i mean so i'll just waffle on hopefully i'll get that out next week but tell you what's coming in today sure we have glenn b dugan that is the main author, should I say, on today's show. It's an original his story, Winnebago. 
And I'm just looking forward to giving you this one. We also have, yes, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, we're looking back at genre history. So, before we get into all that, you know, I was a few weeks ago as well, again, with a ramble, talking about the metaverse and everything like that. Well, in me delirium, <laughs> didn't I buy? <laughs> I, was, I wasn't being that ill because I was able to buy one of those Oculus Quest 2 headset virtual reality things. And, man, yes, you've got to sign up to the man and, you know what I mean, in, in kind of the... I've actually got a, a Facebook account, so it just kind of it worked all thing. But mother chucker, what a, an experience is this! You know what I mean? Just it's just it's just fantastic to be honest. It's I'm honestly in this world of Star Wars at the moment, and I'm just loving it. Do you know what I mean? Again, I'll, I'll waffle on more. I'll see what I'll put this in the next one as well in that kind of next show, just to tell you. But hey. Gets a thumbs up from me, that virtual, um, the Oculus Quest. So, let's get into the main fiction. Like I said, Winneburger by Glenn B. Duncan. Glenn is our country based in Brooklyn, New York. He exists within a Venn diagram of urban, urban design, sociology and good stories. When not obsessing about one of those three, you can find him at the park, drinking lots of black coffee and listening to podcasts about murder. For more of his work, go to his website, whereisglennow.com. That, Glenn, that is, that is the, the best website address I've heard for a long time. The story... Is narrated by Anthony Babington. Anthony is a voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. Previously, he recorded for Farfetch Fables, Tales to Terrify, and The Big Sea. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Winnenberger by Glenn Dungan. Travis sighs sips his Dr. Pepper, and looks at the giant, luminescent burger rotating in the middle of nowhere. He's eating one of the burgers, heated up from home and taken on his drive here. He curses at himself when a piece of bun gets stuck in his braces, and he hates himself even more when he has to turn down the music in his car to get a better look in the rearview mirror in order to excavate it. A canvas of picked pimples looks like burst pizza bubbles on his sallow skin, and his hair is determined to be permanently greasy underneath the hand-me-down Cowboy Cal's Bronco Burgers cap, forever bent out of shape by the weight of the wire that was just a little too small for his head. Unsuccessful with the burger excavation, Travis scowls, picks his nose, and flicks the booger in the ashtray. It was a bad habit, he knew, but Audrey Winneberger, heiress to the Winneberger fast food chain and prettiest girl in the world, like, ever, would never go to prom with him anyway, so like, why did it matter? And so, Travis treks across the parking lot, watched by the stupid cowboy and his dueling pistols. He nods to the previous worker as they trade shifts. The starry night of the desert sky disappears into a miasma of old grease and the sizzling of burgers on the grill. He navigates through the kitchen, past the automated machines and bags full of soda syrup for the soda machine that, like, always seems to break, like, all the time. Travis sidles up to the front counter waving away a permanent cluster of flies as if parting beads in a hippie basement. This burger joint is no larger than a one-car garage, 
and it looks especially small in proportion to the giant cowboy cal, which was like the only and biggest source of light pollution in the desert. The blanket of stars cannot be seen from the glass perimeter, dominated by the yellow-orange glow of the slowly spinning and creaking sign. Being at the front counter, waiting to take orders, was like being in a fishbowl. He couldn't even see any of the customers until they walked through the door. Mechanically, Travis begins to refill the straws, which was the responsibility of the person leaving their shift, but whatever, and opens a new bag of pre-cut french fries in anticipation for the rush. He restocks all the little containers of sauces, barbecue, ketchup, honey mustard, sweet and spicy, special sauce. He was in the middle of prepping the buns when the bell chimes and announces a customer. Travis wonders who it's going to be today. No one ever comes to Cowboy Cal's Bronco Burger unless they're coming from something or to something, like weary travelers and the like. If they want a real burger, they could go to Winneburger, where the seats are padded, and Audrey sometimes visits with her friends that are really mean, but she's not, and that's why Travis is so enamored with her. The guest is already at the counter. He wears a cowboy hat and is clicking the spiked heels of his cowboy boots. In a way, he looks a little bit like Cowboy Cal. Underneath the lip of his hat, Travis sees one side of his face plated with metal. He stares at Travis with a lopsided ruby eye and gnaws intently on a toothpick. The smell of gunpowder pushes against the stale oil coming from the back. So Travis is, like, in an olfactory Venn diagram of sorts? It wasn't the worst smell, Travis thinks. One time some of the boys in the locker room held him down while Big Bill, their dim-witted leader, farted in his face. A number twelve, the robot cowboy says. His voice sounds as if dragged through gravel. Travis punches the order in and asks what sauces he wants. The robot cowboy straightens, his ruby eye flashing as a series of complex equations ask and then answer themselves in the part of his brain that has become a supercomputer. Barbecue, he says after a second, but Travis already has the packets in his hand. It does not take a supercomputer to determine that a cowboy, even a half-metal one, would want barbecue sauce for his burger in the middle of the desert. Travis assembles the order and slides the tray over to him, saying, Have a Bronco Burger Day. The robot cowboy grunts and takes the tray. Pivoting, Travis sees blood spots on the back of his vest, and within them a mosaic of cold steel and flesh. This man was coming from something. Travis picks at an acne scab at the bottom of his neck and continues to think of Audrey Winneberger. They were in science class just last week, and even though they were not partners, one day Travis will get the courage to ask her. Their stations were adjacent to one another. She dropped her pencil and Travis gave it to her, their fingers almost touching. She said thanks, and he said no problem. Had his been a different world, perhaps one where he had enough confidence as Cody Malminer, the captain of the baseball team, he could have said something bold and funny, and, like, Audrey would have laughed and gone home that day, thinking of how funny Travis was and maybe I should give him a chance, because looks don't matter, and, like, maybe sallow acne canyon skin doesn't matter, too. Maybe. The robot cowboy leaves and holds the door open for the next customer, so the bell doesn't ring. Travis is glad that he is here for this transition, because he's seen the flat man before, and has missed him when he is standing at a difficult angle. The flat man is the name he has given to this figure, which zigzags up to the counter, bending at erratic 90-degree angles. The flat man is a two-dimensional figure, existent only on one plane of this realm, for their dimension is strictly 2D. 
Flatman looks like the stick figures Travis used to draw in his notebook, which was full of other cartoons and comics that Travis likes to draw. He's actually quite good at drawing and used to carry the notebook everywhere. Hell, it would probably be with him right now, right underneath the counter, had he not dropped it in the toilet when Big Bill gave him a swirly last week. The flat man does not talk, but seems to understand the nuances of ordering, and Travis understands this of the flat man. The flat man takes one paper-thin arm and points to the screen above Travis with all the orders. Travis looks over his shoulder, nods, and then proceeds to assemble a tray of still-to-be-configured-to-go burger containers. Travis arranges them in a variety of colors on the tray, then slides it over to the flat man, who bends to inspect the meal, straightens to attention, and slaps the tray away, all while emitting a body language of self-righteous disgust. Travis centers himself with a deep breath and proceeds to assemble a new tray of little french fry bags and some printer paper from the back. He presents it to the flat man, who then bends his two-dimensional, featureless face in approval and takes the tray to one of the seats. Travis proceeds to clean up the fallen tray, confirming his theory that there are two flatmans. Flatmen? One which likes the thin cardboard, and the other that likes the even thinner printer paper. It's a 50-50 shot every time. Travis sneaks a couple of glances as the flat man rigidly bends onto its seat and proceeds to eat, shoving bits of the printer paper into where Travis assumes is its mouth. Fifteen minutes later, the bell chimes, and Travis snaps to attention. The song of the French fry friar recedes into the background, an ever-present hum. He scratches a boil at his neck, careful not to pick at the dried pus encrusted around it. How can I help you? The blob, more like a living gelatin, makes no sign that it acknowledges Travis's presence. It is slightly luminescent and smells a little like glue. The flat man makes no acknowledgement of the new guest and the blob offers no attention to the flat man. Light refracts off some parts of its bouncy body like an oil slick. It looks to be more poured than grown, as if born from a toothpaste tube. In its gelatinous figure, parts of misshapen bones float in stasis like bits in a fruitcake. The bones are vaguely simian, as if someone has drawn in the bones from memory. Travis wonders what life form this blob is or if it had eaten a humanoid creature and was digesting it right before his very nearsighted eyes. It is a living lava lamp and moves as sluggishly. A form appears from its round shape, a semblance of a limb with a single wiggling finger, pointing to the menu looming above Travis like a watchful eye. Travis gulps, afraid of how to, like, communicate this snafu. He's actually pretty good at Spanish, passing with some of the highest marks in the class. Not that anyone would really know. Travis's father considers good grades not as an accomplishment, but a duty. Nothing to be celebrated, only completed. That was all right, though. Travis often found reprieve in Spanish class. The other kids are usually first generation, their extended family miles across the border into Mexico. They're too busy worrying about themselves to make fun of Travis's boils or his long nose or his yellow teeth. He wanted to take Italian and impress Audrey Winneberger, though. Her whole family takes a private jet to Vienna every year, and it's really a talk of the school which of Audrey's friends get to go on the trip with her. She's so generous. Travis was close, just this past winter, to joining her and her friends. In study hall, he was assigned in between Trixie Darling and Monica Herring, who was really good friends with Audrey. She walked down the row, giving formal invitations to Trixie, skipping over Travis, and then Monica. She walked down the row and asked Cody Malmaner to come on the trip. 
They've been hanging out a lot lately before that, and now they have lunch together quite frequently. Maybe next year, Travis thinks, when they all come home from their first year in college and maybe run into him getting, like, gas or something, and Audrey will see that he really was the most funny, charming guy in high school. And like, it's all right, Audrey, don't worry. But then Travis looks at the blob and wonders how actually good his Spanish really is. The blob pulls out a second arm from its body. Some of the strange bones pull along with it. The blob reaches out its new limb and touches the register, leaving a slight shimmer on the monitor. With its other arm, it forms a three-pronged antenna, bends two tines, and waits for Travis to mimic the motion. Then the blob puts its finger on its recently sprouted antenna, and Travis understands. Feeling a little stupid for having to be told this, he places his finger on the blob's limb, ignores how rubbery it feels, and receives a psychic supercharged sound like but somehow is able to unfold and decipher it. No worries, young boy, I've been there too. You know, when I was just a tadpole, that's what we call them from my parts, you know, like slang. Anyway, when I was a young boy, I had hardly the brain to understand any tongues, and was so afraid of looking foolish that I hardly tried at all. Anyway, enough of my jabbering. I would like a number two, please. And please hold the mayo, in case you had not understood that before. If so, please disregard this redundancy of commands. You are not a machine, you are a young boy. A young boy, indeed. Oh, and a diet orange soda, young boy. Travis, feeling slightly nauseous, assembles the meal, mayo withheld. He wants to speak more of the language, but loses all concept of it, like the waking moments after dreaming. Travis makes a fresh fish fillet for the blob, simply because that was such a strangely intimate experience they shared. Yet something pulls at the depths of Travis's emotions in a way that made him feel whole, yet slightly uncomfortable. As he slides the meal across the counter, he notices the blob is overpaid. Before he can correct the blob, he watches the organism slowly raise the tray over where its head would be and split like a giant shimmering Venus flytrap, where it drops the entire tray into its gaping maw. It was a surprisingly clean process, and the flat man at the neighboring table still makes no acknowledgement. Instead, all the flat man does is erect itself like one of those wacky inflating tube men outside the car dealerships and saunter out of the joint giving Travis a polite wave that looks as if a human tried waving to a baby wearing oven mitts. The rest of the night is slow, as it usually is in the early morning. After the blob leaves, and Travis inspects the area to make sure none of its biomatter encrusted on the seats, he got to stocking, unpacking, and even has a burger on the house, even though his boss does not let the workers do that. He has a couple guests come in. A reptilian woman buys seven number eights and demands them uncooked at around 10 p.m. Not long after her, a literal gas cloud consisting of what appears to be a portal to a faraway nebula floats in and asks for three large refills of Diet Cola, communicating through what Travis could only receive as orchestral music for a very specific brand. Then, at around 12 a.m., just when Travis is finishing his own ending duties to help transition for the next worker, a final customer appears much to Travis's chagrin. He has to squint his eyes, pulls the stupid cap over his brows. In the light is the silhouette of a womanly figure, her arms outstretched. Little beads float around its billowing cloaks, as if the creature has its own orbit. The light recedes, revealing a lithe woman with long blonde hair cascading down to her hips. Her skin has the quality of porcelain. Six wings fold themselves tightly behind her back. A multitude of crystalline blue eyes along her arms stare intently at Travis, and this does not disturb him. Silver glitter dots her porcelain cheeks, 
and she wears what looks like a bishop's cap which goes over her eyes, molding to the bridge of her nose. Travis finds he could not speak to this guest. She is too beautiful. And yet he's not self-conscious. She waits patiently in front of the counter, beads continuing to orbit. Muster your strength, she says, and this was enough for Travis to collect himself. How can I help you? I desire a number four, with extra special sauce. Travis assembles the meal. It is policy to give the customer only one additional packet of sauce when they ask for extra, but Travis adds an extra one on top of that because he wants to. He slides the tray across the counter and feels bad asking for payment. Wordless, she raises an eyeball-lined porcelain arm and reveals the appropriate change in her delicate palm. She waits for Travis to pluck the money from her hand. It feels strangely tender for him to do so. Travis puts the money in the register and notices the angelic figure has locked up. The eyes on her arms have reddened, looking forlorn and at the floor. When starting this job, Travis was told not to ask questions to the guests, other than what they want for a meal. However, her utter radiance envelops him like a cocoon, makes him want to appeal to the better part of himself. Pardon my asking, Travis says, but it seems like you've had a long day. The angel blinks her many eyes. Then, with a gold-lipped smile, says, How could you tell, child? Travis shrugs, not expecting to get this far. The angel tilts her head, the locks of her hair shifting like the scales of a holy judgment. My celestial partner of sixty thousand years asked for a divorce today. Travis did not know angels could get divorced. Or rather, he never thought about whether they could or could not. He thinks of how sad his father was when his mother abandoned them. It was about ten years ago, and they moved to a much smaller house, the absence of his mother haunting the halls like a sickness. He got up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and found his father in his pajamas, sitting on the still-unpacked kitchen floor, an empty bottle of whiskey at his feet. "'Just go, Travis,' his father said. "'Just go.' And so Travis went back to bed, and told himself he would never forget what it was like to see someone in such emotional pain and to be so helpless. Travis thinks of the only thing he could say to this angel at this moment— a culmination of every combination of syllables he has spoken in his life, every second folded in and cinching into the nexus of an hourglass, before and after. He says, Don't let a bad day ruin the rest of your week. He recognizes it is a stupid thing to say to this celestial being, who probably has a far grander perception of time than he, but it always makes him feel a little better when he says it to himself. The angel freezes, sheepishly blinks her many eyes, and smiles again. Thank you. It takes Travis considerable willpower not to watch the angel sit and eat. It's like watching a piece of art in motion. Instead, he finishes his closing duties, becoming so engrossed with his closing tasks that he did not notice the angel leaving. When he goes to bus her table, he sees a note written on the back of the receipt. You are a good person, Travis not because you knew what to say, but because you had enough bravery to care. You will make someone very happy some day. It might not be tomorrow, nor the next day, but that day will come. I promise you. It is written in gold script that refracts light. It was just a receipt, but for whatever reason, Travis folds the paper and puts it in the pocket of his jeans. The note feels warm and heavy against his thigh. He finishes his closing duties, 
fixes himself a complimentary Dr. Pepper, and then nods solemnly to the next burger flipper on his way out, who asks how the shift went. Just okay, Travis says. Nothing special. It's around 1 a.m., and he has school in about six hours. Tuesday nights are challenging, but sometimes they aren't. Travis walks across the empty parking lot, the glow of the Cowboy Cal's Bronco Burger and Alien Miasma behind him. His sneakers crunch on the desert sand, kicking past littered burger wrappers and soda cups. He tosses his apron and hat onto the back seat. His car smells like stale french fries. Travis catches a glimpse of himself in the rearview mirror, looks at the simulacrum of a pepperoni pizza that is his sallow face, and instinctively begins to pick at the numerous zits that materialize from this shift's spittle of grease. He stops himself, feels the weight of the angel's nice words, and instead grips his hands on the steering wheel, looking out to the blanket of stars and the universe in motion. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And there you go. Glenn Water, man. Thank you so much. That was just absolutely brilliant. Glenn, thank you indeed. And adding, adding, adding the, <laughs> there you go. There's a, a mash of both. Andy, what would we do without you? Honestly, thank you. Honestly, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. So, we have, yes, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And Happy New Year, if indeed this is a new year, and not just 2020 Part 3. Ah, well, at any rate, I hope you are safe and well. I am glad that you are here. I'm glad that I am here, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about a really amazing work today. The work that I want to talk about is a pioneering piece. It is a novel that is, well, horror, adventure, gothic romance, and yes, straight-up science fiction. And it's a science fiction in several important ways. It deals with 
things that were at the time considered to be scientific. Topics such as mesmerism, for example. And we've talked in the past about how mesmerism in science fiction goes all the way back to, say, Edgar Allan Poe. That's just one example. And at the heart of the work is the theme of lost or hidden worlds. And we've talked about lost worlds before as well. We could date that back to, goodness, Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels back to 1726. Well, even earlier, depending on how you define it. Lost worlds have had an enduring place in science fiction. I would say some of the biggies would be works by, say, H. Ryder Haggard, like King Solomon's Mines in 1885, She in 86 and 87, the Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle in 1912, and The Citadel of Fear in 1918. That was Gertrude Barrows Bennett writing as Francis Stevens, but that's a very long list of important Lost Worlds science fiction stories. And this work is also a predecessor of, an ancestor of, one of today's most important hidden worlds, if you will, and that is Wakanda. As you may know, Wakanda is a fictional country in East Africa. It is the home to superhero Black Panther, and we were first introduced to Wakanda in Fantastic Four number 52, which is back in 1966. And now Wakanda is ubiquitous. It is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, thanks to the Black Panther film. It's a source of inspiration to many, and it also really embodies the way that this kind of storytelling can offer social and political critique and commentary. So I want to backtrack and look at an ancestor work, the Wakanda before there was Wakanda, an important, challenging, and beautiful novel called Of One Blood or The Hidden Self by Pauline Hopkins. Let me start with Pauline Hopkins herself, a remarkable woman. She lived from 1859 to 1930, and she was an American writer, that is, novelist and journalist and playwright and historian. And she was also a key editor in the beginning of the 20th century. One of the most important things she did was use novels, use fiction, to explore social issues, to talk about themes, particularly those of race. Now, a lot of members of, say, the Harlem Renaissance as a literary movement are better known today, but Pauline Hopkins deserves to have her name in the list of influential literary figures from the United States, not just the black community, in the 20th century. She was one of the most prolific black women writers in the country and an incredibly influential literary editor. She worked particularly with the Colored American magazine, and she published multiple stories and novels. And one of her short stories, in fact, is another important first. Talma Gordon was published in 1900, and it often receives credit as being the first black mystery story published in the United States. 
Pauline Hopkins is a remarkable figure, and if you're interested in more information, there are some great books out there about her. I would point out, for example, John Cullen Grusser's 1996 book, The Unruly Voice, Rediscovering Pauline Elizabeth Hopkins. That's from the University of Illinois Press. And Lois Brown wrote Pauline Elizabeth Hopkins' Black Daughter of the Revolution in 2008, and that is with the University of North Carolina Press. There's lots of good information out there about her, and she's certainly worth learning more about and absolutely worth reading. So I would recommend Of One Blood or the Hidden Self by Pauline Hopkins. This was originally published in serial format in 1902 and 1903 in the Colored American magazine. And the version that I read and that I recommend is a new version published in 2021 by the Horror Writers Association. This is part of their The Haunted Library of Horror Classics series. And this edition also benefits from a terrific introduction by Nisi Shawl. First, let me read you the back cover. This is the official blurb, quote, When medical student Rule Briggs reluctantly attends a performance by the beautiful singer Dianthe Lusk, he can't help but fall for her. The very next day, their paths cross again when Dianthe's train crashes. To bring her back from the brink of death, Rule draws on an eerie power he can't quite name. Soon the two are engaged, and Rule sets off on an archaeological expedition to Africa to offset his debts before the wedding. But in Ethiopia, unexpected danger and terror force him to confront the truth about his lineage, his power, and the history that lives in his very blood. End quote. And now I'd like to quote for just a couple of paragraphs from the terrific introduction by Nisi Shawl. And I'm going to edit out a couple of phrases to avoid spoilers. Quote, Hopkins's hero, Rule Briggs, himself hiding his own African heritage, discovers a hidden kingdom. Unlike the imaginary countries of most of the genre's exemplars, however, its inhabitants are black, not only black, but proud of that blackness. Hopkins has an official of this proto-Wakanda lecture American-born rule that from black civilization came, quote, all the arts and cunning inventions that make your modern glory, end quote. That's a heady thesis, especially for the time in which the book was published, less than 40 years after the end of the U.S. Civil War, it's still a marvelous assertion today and offers her readers a thrill just as audacious, just as mentally invigorating, just as cosmologically expansive in its implications as ever. Hopkins is in some way the foremother of Octavia E. Butler and Tanana Reeve Du and many of today's leading science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors primarily because she's another African-descended woman using a popular genre to write speculatively about hard philosophical questions, surprising truths, and the wonders of the occult, end quote. Wow, beautifully put. Can't be said better than that. I loved this novel. I was 
moved by this novel so many times. And the writing is gorgeous. The high stakes, not only for the characters, but for the reader, for all of humanity, just very powerful. I want to first point out something that made me, again, appreciate how this is tied up in the story of science fiction as working within larger traditions, obviously as Schall points out, inspiring and connecting to later voices in the tradition. But there's a a beautiful moment as they are moving into Ethiopia. This is the beginning of chapter 8, and Hopkins writes, Next morning the camp was early astir before the dawn, and before the sun was up breakfast was over, and the first boatload of the explorers was standing on the side of the ruins, watching the unloading of the apparatus for opening solid masonry and excavating within the pyramids. The feelings of every man in the party were ardently excited by the approach to the city once the light of the world's civilization. The great French writer, Volney, exclaimed when first his eyes beheld the sight, quote, How are we astonished when we reflect that to the race of Negroes, the object of our extreme contempt, we owe our arts, sciences, and even the use of speech, end quote. From every point of view rose magnificent groups of pyramids rising above pyramids. Gorgeous section there. And one of the things Hopkins does really well is connect the enlightenment and awakening of the main character to our larger enlightenment and understanding about the story of humanity. So it's a very personal story about identity, but it's also a larger story about humanity. What I want to point out about that passage, though, that is quoting Volney, right? In which Volney is recognizing the debt that humanity owes to Africa. That is from Constantin Francois Volney's The Ruins, or Meditations on the Revolution of Empires and the Law of Nature. It's commonly just known as Ruin of Empires. That came out in 1791, and I just want to give a science fictional shout out here and point out that that is also one of the books The Creature Reads in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. If you'll recall, the creature has a remarkably humane and rich education, and part of that is Mary Shelley's commentary. So to see that through line from Volney's work to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to Hopkins of One Blood is particularly powerful. I highly recommend that you check out this novel. It has a little bit of everything, including, as I've mentioned before, it has adventure, it has horror, it has romance, it has straight-up science fiction, and it also has a great deal of meaning, a great deal to say about history and culture, about identity, about race, and it's also absolutely beautifully written. And I want to read a little passage here just to highlight the gorgeous language that Hopkins uses. 
Quote, one by one, the men retired to rest, each one under the spell of the mysterious forces of a past life that brooded like a mist over the sandy plain, the dark Nile rolling sluggishly along within a short distance of their camp, and the ruined city now a magnificent necropolis. The long shadows grew longer, painting the scene into beauty and grandeur. The majesty of death surrounded the spot, and its desolation spoke in trumpet tones of the splendor which the grave must cover, when even the memory of our times shall be forgotten. End quote. And spoiler, while this is gorgeous description, I should note that things are not as past and dead and ruined there as it first appears. So from 1902-1903, that is Of One Blood or The Hidden Self by Pauline Hopkins. And the new edition of that work is from the Horror Writers Association, from their The Haunted Library of Horror Classics collection that is published in 2021 with an introduction by Nisi Shawl. I hope you will check it out, and I hope this was of interest to you, and I look forward to joining you soon for something completely different when we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. And big, Amy, big, big happy new year to you last year. Big, big, big new year hug there. I would have wished you it sooner or getting in touch with you sooner. I would, oh, I've, I've been ill. <laughs> Man flu. Oh, I'm terrible for it. No one else got affected in the house like me, but bloody hell. But Amy, huge thank you. Big hugs. And all the best for 2022. And I will see you in virtual. I will drop you a link so you can get one of those Oculus Quests. <laughs> Until next time, I'd just like to see it. Good night from me. Thank you for listening. Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. Best I'm moving slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you.
If I could cast myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 